0: Some people call it dumpster diving, I call it food rescuing, and our interview guest Matt calls it urban harvesting. Every single day, retailers throw away edible food, and activists like Matt Homewood document their finds and share them on social media platforms like Instagram and LinkedIn. And there's so much to find.
1: Well, remember, I'm in Europe. I'm in Denmark. This is meat and dairy country. So inevitably, that means a lot of meat and dairy ends up in the trash. And so some of the biggest harvests I've had is, for example, 157 packets of bacon. That's about 16 kilos worth of bacon. And so I did the maths. I thought, how much bacon is there in a pig? And so I worked out that it's basically five pigs worth of bacon. Now, all those packets had been trashed because the best before uh, or the use by date had come and gone, but not a single discount sticker had been placed on those products.
0: For the past 3 years Matt has been an active food waste campaigner and recently shared his work at COP26. Today we talk about what it takes to get big corporations to change, how retailers are the oligopoly of the food system, I call them the bouncers, (laughs) and the moral dilemma of doing something illegal for a good cause. That was a super interesting conversation, easy flowing. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Let's jump right in. This is Bread to Grain, the audiobook style podcast where food tech meets sustainability. You're listening to season 4 on food waste. To support our work, please subscribe and share the episodes with your colleagues and friends. I'm your host. When did Marie you start getting into rescuing food
1: yourself? I started rescuing food officially on this Instagram social media project, which I call actually an urban harvester, late 2018. So three years now. But I actually started dumpster diving a couple of years before that, properly in the Danish countryside. And then I cycled from New York City to Seattle in the USA. And we as a group lived on supermarket food waste, where we rescued food from town to town to town, just living off it. And yeah, that's how I encountered the topic of food rescuing. So it's been a while now.
0: So you pretty much had this group of friends traveling together by bike, which is obviously very sustainable also and intense and just living pretty much without any expenses for a while of food that would have been thrown away otherwise, which is usually still good, right? So that is like the common theme that a lot of the food that ends up in the dumpsters is totally edible still, right?
1: that's the thing this food's totally edible and one of your questions you sent me was about language I think language is so important you alluded the fact that you want to talk about food rescuing I talk about urban harvesting because I'm harvesting great resources in the cities and then most people call it dumpster diving you could call it freeganism or yeah freegans but yeah in a way dumpster diving has too much bad baggage with it so I like you I try to kind of avoid that term but yeah the food if you've ever been dumpster diving or food rescuing is perfect often and that's the tragedy of all this and that's why I I can kind of keep going even though part of me wants to give up sometimes because it's so tiring uh, because it's a farce and politicians seriously need to wake up to this this scandal really.
0: And you're making pictures of the food that you're rescuing sometimes it's ridiculous amounts what has been one of the biggest harvests that you ever had.
1: I found 800 eggs. There were actually 2,000, but because I do all this harvesting by bicycle, uh, I could only bring back 800 out of the 2,000. I found a thousand euros worth of cheese. That's the stuff I brought home. There's probably about two or three thousand euros worth in the bin. All sorts of fruit and vegetables you can think of in Europe. Remember, in the rich north, we don't want to grow fruit and veg because it's not very profitable labor's expensive and also it's cold. So that's why we grow all our food more or less in well, fruit and vegetables down in Italy or Greece or Spain, where labor is often immigrants from North Africa or sub-Saharan Africa. Workers' rights are pretty non-existent and that means very cheap labor. And so that's where all the fruit and veg comes from in Northern Europe. So Germany and all the rest of it. We also see a lot of fruit and veg that have traveled two, three thousand kilometers by lorry. So it's kind of crazy. You know what? When I was preparing this, this podcast, I thought, what has been the craziest thing I've found? And there's one time where I jumped the fence. And so in Denmark, it's legal to dumpster dive as long as you don't jump a fence or there's no lock. So many dumpsters are actually accessible so it's very much legal. So sometimes I jump the fence because why not? There's not many police and you know why privilege? I definitely get away with that that's important to flag. It's crucial so you have to take photos because they go to a massive extent to hide all this stuff. So anyway I jumped the fence, I opened the dumpster, this was January a couple years back and there was a dead cat in the the dumpster. It scared the living shit out of me. But uh, and then as I've said lots of food of all sorts. Basically anything you Find in a supermarket, even non-perishable, like dried chickpeas or canned tuna or canned fish, a portion of that will end up in the dumpster. When it's perishable, it's probably more like four or five percent of the things coming into the store. Of course, non-perishable, I'd hope it's like less than one percent because these things are going off, and at least you can donate them, but it's more waste than the average consumer might realize. And importantly, for the consumer, who do you think is paying for this waste? Because someone is. Well, it's us. It's us in the recommended retail price. Supermarkets have all this in their business models and they factor in their annual percentage of waste relative to their turnover and boom, they put in the price. So it's you, me and everyone else who's paying. it. And that's why it's so crucial that consumers start getting involved with in this. They shouldn't think, oh, it's a few hippie activists. No, far from it. This is their problem too, for sure. So have
0: you ever been caught dumpster diving in a country where it's not legal? And what was the reaction of the police?
1: So in Denmark, where I've been dumpster diving for yeah almost five years now, Never, never been caught. But in the USA, when I was on that cycle with this environmentalist called Rob Greenfield and the other people that joined us on that trip, there private property reigns supreme and private property covers trash in the USA. So there we definitely had multiple encounters. In a country like the USA, in a legal perspective, you are the one in the wrong. But we had a few more fiery characters in the group. And we had a couple of Australians who were just incensed that the um, employees would threaten to call the police or the sheriff or whatever and sure enough they did multiple times in montana for example we were in a bit of a hairy situation so we cycled on quickly and sure enough the local supermarket called the cops on us and they pulled over the two aussies maybe 20 kilometers away from the supermarket and they warned us or they warned them luckily. No arrest were made, but we definitely were a bit bit nervous after that. And in Germany, private property is also very, very well respected and that covers trash, as does in France, most countries basically. Uh, Scandinavia I would say is more the unique situation where things are very much on the relaxed side of things. Most countries go to great lengths to protect all their property and, and very much their supermarket food waste. And so, for example, when I spoke at COP26 recently in Glasgow for that climate change conference, I didn't want that to be about me and just my work, far from it. So I reached out to all my network on Instagram, especially for dumpster divers. I got inundated by folks from Germany. Like I mean, so much. But most of them, did not want to show their face and that's because of legal reasons. It's too risky.
0: Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who used to do dumpster diving in Germany for a bit and she's so passionate about the topic and she could go on and on about it and talking about how she felt like a criminal doing that and how she had this internal conflict that she is doing something that she regards to be important and useful. And she also is donating the food that she finds to local communities or people she knows needed or homeless people on the street. So there are these strong environmental and social causes that drive her to do it. And at the same time, while she's doing that, she is feeling like a criminal. And it's like two different worldviews clashing against each other in the act of rescuing food from a dumpster. When she told me that, I was like, oh my, (laughs) this is so so wrong in a way that private property, I mean, there's a value in private property, but then there's also a value in respecting the resources we have and trying to use the resources respectfully, meaning trying to do our best to Put them to use in any way <laughs> instead of just throwing them.
1: Completely. And I really feel for your friend. I mean, throughout history, right, it's been constant power struggle after power struggle. And clearly in the food system, especially today, with the UN expects what something silly, like 70 or 80% of people by 2050 living in cities. I don't recommend that. And I think it's a bad Bad way for society to live with all us huddled up in urban areas. The problem with that is that it means there are billions of consumers who are urban who have basically no way of growing their own food. You've got millions of farmers, but then you've got a handful of companies who control the entire retail sector. And what does that mean? In economics, that's not my background. It's taken me a while to get up to speed with economics. But basically, this is an oligopoly. You've got a few companies that dictate. The whole retail sector. And what that means is that they can put farmers over barrels, we say in English, and drive prices down constantly because who else is the farmer going to sell to? And then on the other side, it can jack up prices to make ever more profits because consumers don't have many other options to shop around, right? And they're all part of these networks and it's a major issue. Essentially, what we're seeing is food hoarding and they're making a massive bottleneck. Capitalism, for better or worse, has been extremely effective at producing colossal amounts of food. But on the farms, we're seeing 40% of food waste. Some academics have thought, let's call it food loss, which is nonsensical. We can talk about that later because definitions are important. But 40% of food is not making it to shops. Now, of course, if you restrict the supply, but the demand stays high, then of course prices will go up, right? So by restricting the supply of food, it's only the consumer that loses out and the farmer, of course, because then they've got to find a solution to do all that extra carrots or potatoes they have. And then they feed it to livestock, which is not the most efficient way because livestock only convert a portion of the energy they're fed because they need to heat themselves and move and live. So my point with that is we're living in an oligopoly and that power struggle is extremely concerning because food waste is just one factor, one symptom of that economic system.
0: Interesting. Yeah, we had the topic of food waste and food loss throughout the season. I've mostly just referred to it as food waste. One of the reasons is that I've come across more of, yeah, let's say an argument on a language level, saying that, well, if you talk about food loss, it sort of seems like this is something inevitable. Like, sort of like, ah, oh, it's just, you know, it's just lost food. We didn't waste it. We didn't actively do something to contribute to that. It's just lost because of external circumstances. Is that one of the reasons why you think this is nonsensical?
1: as you say language is crucial and basically what i found out through various people's works is that the united nations and an organisation in britain called RAP, what they're called waste and resources and action programme or something the mistake they have made with food waste is that they've split up food waste into food loss and food waste basically food losses from the farm all the way to the retailer but excluding the retailer and then food waste is the rest this is a rigged accounting system the issue with that accounting system of the food loss and food waste is that if you think about it as we said the supermarket is by far the most powerful actor in the food supply chain. So when, for example, a supermarket company cancels their last minute order of tomatoes, for example, because sales have been poor, well, what the hell is that tomato farmer meant to do? But in this accounting system, that person bears all the food waste or food loss, as we said. So the system is inevitably rigged to put all of the food waste issue on the consumer because a lot of the food waste actually caused by supermarkets upstream from their stores is placed on food manufacturers or farmers. And so this is why if you do a quick Google of who is responsible for food waste, it's always the same thing. The consumer wastes the most food. Uh, And you go on a supermarket website, it's always, yes, we waste a little bit of food, but actually you, the consumer waste the most, so we're going to help you reduce food waste. It's completely ridiculous. And the issue with the food loss is interesting. It's a fascinating study that I recommend folks to read, and that was made by a company called Anthesis, commissioned by the WWF and Tesco, ironically. Came out this summer, and before the study, we thought there was about 1.3 trillion kilos of food waste, and that's food loss and food waste a year. But they did a lot of research into what's happening on the farm because there's a lot of uncertainties with what's happening on the farm. And their research suggests there's 1.2 trillion kilos of food waste happening on farms. They actually just use food waste. Like you and I, they've had enough of this whole food loss nonsense. So 1.2 trillion in addition to 1.3, that's a 90% increase. Just overnight like that. So it goes to show basically we don't have a clue what's going on. And then there was a little chapter in that study which talked about The UK wheat scenario. Basically, I don't know the exact data right now, but I I encourage folks to go into it. But the UK wheat industry, let's say fifty-five percent of the annual harvest goes to humans, but the the forty-five percent remaining is just inedible, or or so they say, and so goes to feed livestock. But on the food loss measurement only 1% is recorded because under food loss, if a food that's wasted on a farm goes to feed livestock, then it's not considered waste. And so I know it gets a little boring for people sometimes, but it's important to understand that it's these definitions that are driving these problems because you can just rig the accounting. And we see that constantly for CO2 emissions and the whole climate debates about often rigged accounting.
0: Yeah, so interestingly, you have a different point than the CEO and founder of Olio, Tessa Clark, who we had on the podcast, who argued that the consumers are to blame, especially in the UK, for example, where the average consumer throws away 700 pounds worth of food each year and the consumer accounts for 40% of the food waste. So what would you argue when you hear that standpoint?
1: Interesting. I mean, I've got a lot of respect for what earlier have done. They've really driven the agenda of food waste in the UK. I don't know the exact numbers for the UK, but I know them in Denmark. And what I would say is I split commercial food waste from farm to retailer and household food waste. for the biggest reason I split that up is because when people waste food at home, they're literally throwing their money out the window. Now this is completely irrational, and I do think that we're gonna have to put significant funds towards re-education of the food and the importance it has on people, and of course, the planet. Wasting 700 quid a year is absolute madness, especially when you know how many people are struggling to get by in the UK. What I would say is that, of course, in a large perspective, if you just look at under the food waste definition, Tessa Clark is right. Certainly in Denmark, she's right. But in Denmark, of course, that 5.8 million people are going to waste more food than 2,800 supermarkets. But what I'm more interested in is on a per-actor basis, and if you look at how much one supermarket weighs versus one citizen, one supermarket wastes about 800 times more on the year. And of course, supermarkets are making money on this food waste across their national business. So I would encourage people to split up the problem, because the incentives behind the food waste are very different indeed. As we said, remember, all the food loss from the farm and food manufacturers, that doesn't come under supermarkets under our definition. And if you were to actually put that under supermarkets, then actually they'd be responsible for a lot more.
0: Yeah, you know, we for each season really think through what are the topics we want to represent? How much do we represent each topic? Because we want to give a good balanced overview of the theme so that somebody who hasn't any clue in the beginning of the season actually has a good overview at the end of it. And for this season, I've been just feeling like I'm talking about retailers the whole time. <laughs> it's- like, it's like I need to change the, the season topic to food waste at the retailer stage <laughs> and I've been feeling a bit guilty in a way like oh, oops that's escalated a little bit but it seems to me also that it's such a central point and that's the interesting thing that if you look at most statistics, the retailers seem to be such a small percentage of the waste along the supply chain. Looking at it just by piece of the supply chain doesn't really make sense because everything is so interconnected. And that's the issue that retailers have the biggest power to divert the waste upstream or downstream. They can just decline selling what the wholesaler has, or they can just, you know, bargain for only being... able to have very flexible contracts or to buy like small amounts and the wholesalers have the potential to really bargain with the farmers because there's an inherent power dynamic and an imbalance between the farmers and pretty much anybody who's buying the produce from them and then going downstream the retailers if they discount the food then maybe people will buy it even though they don't need it or don't don't need that much food Although I have to say on that, well, what's the solution then? Should we focus mostly on the consumers? Should we focus more on the retailers? I guess it needs to go in both directions. But what's the strategy that you feel is most viable?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's complex, as you say. I think consumers, as we've said, way more education. Today, food's so cheap and we're so disconnected to food and the land and nature. We don't even think about it. It's like I go to these hotels sometimes because for work, unfortunately, I don't have an option. But there's these massive buffets, what massive amounts of food. And you're thinking, my God, how much of this is going to be trashed in 30 minutes? Probably a huge amount, and so that's the consumer. Really, education, and, and to be fair, I think the supermarket is the problem. I wrote a thesis, and this is how I got into the problem properly. I wrote a thesis called "Transitioning the Food System for the Anthropocene." I should have called it "Capital," uh, capital uh, "Capitalocene." I don't know how to pronounce that. But anyway, capitalism. <laughs> this is the era of capitalism. It's not the era of mankind. We've been here a lot longer. And basically, supermarkets, in a way, are the problem. They can cause that food waste and loss at both ends. I think the supermarket do need to be disrupted. We've got all this internet technology. In a way, we consumers can actually purchase a lot of food straight from the farms and have a more demand-driven food system as opposed to supply-driven, which is what it is more or less at the moment. But in the short term, the supermarkets are here. If you think about your friends and family, how many actually go to a farm to pick up their food, right? Probably very few. Certainly for me, very few. And that's because supermarkets are a bit more affordable at the moment for various reasons, and they are efficient. And what we need to make them is more efficient. So there are various technological solutions out there but what i've seen is that i work for a company now throw no more which basically you know all those yellow products in stores that with that, that discount of 20 30 50 percent it basically just digitalizes those food labels so you could be chilling in your lounge wherever you are and uh, you could assess and see what's available at your local supermarkets on offer so then you could go and actually plan your shopping around those foods that are about to go off so you'd be getting a good deal And of course, you'd be reducing that store's food waste. So it's kind of a win-win, but supermarkets are very reluctant because there's a small fee to pay a month for that service. And in their business model, it's not worth it. And so often they just turn us down, unfortunately. And that goes back to that systemic problem, right? Wasting at the moment is so cheap that it's not worth it to solve that 1% to 5% of turnover really, because they don't need to. And so they just continue with business as usual. And and progress is very, very slow at supermarkets.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And then coming back to the topic of nomenclature, you can say, or just what words we use. Yeah, the dumpster diving, it seems like even the picture that I have in my head, when I see that, it's like, dark and dirty and somebody sticking their head and their upper body into a dumpster with their legs up in the air wiggling, grabbing for something <laughs> deep down in this dirty dumpster and when it's food rescue it's the same thing, right? You can do the same thing, different name food rescue, like somebody with a trash bag, but like with a bag over their shoulder, opening up the dumpster throwing it in, and then jumping out, going like Robin Hood it and giving it to the world okay and it's just i always like and that's that's why at Green, I do talk a lot about perception, like we had a whole season on the perception of cultivated meat and how important like these nuances are. And it's important what we call things because it determines what people associate with it and whether they want to be associated with it. Uh, people don't want to be dumpster divers, most people, but if you are a food rescuer, you are a hero, okay? you You want to be a hero. And so what's your perception on that?
1: I don't have much to add, you're absolutely spot on. Language is so important. I use the words dumpster diving because it is often what people call it. But I try, as I've seen in my blog, call it an urban harvester, I try to shift it, to shift people's mindset. But you're right, it is food rescuing, and uh, especially in Danish, dumpsizing like skala, and just even the word skala, like I'm not in Danish and my Danish is crap, but it just there's so much baggage with that word. And yeah, so words are important. I suppose one thing with social media, unfortunately. So for example, when I post positive things, those posts get no no traction, almost no comments, no likes you put a photo i went dumpster diving in central copenhagen the world's most sustainable city Boom, all the lights come in. And I think it's a shame. Social media, really, more negative or more angry content, it does better. And that's obviously so well documented on Facebook and the rise of Trump and all this stuff. It's a pity. It's a pity. And so not that I always try and feed the algorithm, far from it. But if you use the words dumpster in capital letters, it grabs attention, especially on a kind of more professional platform like LinkedIn. It's quite different to kind of the general CSR stuff they might be following, for example.
0: And did you notice any of the supermarkets that you would be posting on reaching out to you, changing any of their behavior, or actually maybe even telling you to stop posting that stuff?
1: So that's what I was expecting. I was expecting most supermarkets to be pissed off about especially the Danish retailers with who I have professional meetings with about throwing no more. And we haven't landed a contract yet, so maybe I am going about it the wrong way. But we've had some meetings where we've ended the meetings And then they kind of just pull me on the side in front of my colleagues and they say, by the way, Matt, I'd like to really thank you and the other activists for being so vociferous on your social media campaigning because it's made our jobs much easier to make a difference on food. I wasn't expecting that. What we've seen is that financial departments are very, very wary about putting new costs on the business. So, for example, too good to go and things like this. And so there's a great reluctance to invest in those new things. But... If there's enough evidence that this is nonsense and it has to end, then over time, even these finance people can be convinced. So actually, I think there's a massive room for activists to play because if civil society doesn't demand it, you can be pretty damn sure business isn't going to do anything about it. So I think it's been a positive response so far. And
0: you were at COP 26, and food waste hasn't been much of a topic
1: there, right?: No, not at all. Unfortunately, it's not just food waste. The food system has hardly had any action on at COP at all, which is ludicrous because almost 50 percent of this planet is now used to grow crops and crops for livestock. So it's a massive opportunity if we were to get the right for example, agroecological systems out there, you could make so many jobs as well as sequester carbon, produce much better food. It's a massive opportunity we're missing. And food waste, of course, definitely wasn't on the agenda. Luckily, I applied for this Action Hub stage where all sorts of people gave presentations. I compiled my three-year project and got all those activists from all across the world and got their photos up there. And The feedback's been great at the talk. But especially online afterwards, LinkedIn, I think there's been about 60 or 70,000 views of the video, which I split up into three. That's quite a lot of people who might not have ever heard about commercial food waste before. So the COP on the whole has been a great experience and super grateful to have had the chance to go.
0: Well, is there anything that we didn't talk about that's like a story or an insight you would like to share?
1: One interesting story I found at COP actually when I was preparing for that presentation was that this company in Sweden, the largest retailer, they got a big market share. I can't give you the exact percentage, but significant, called ICA, I-C-A. And they have done some good things. I can't tell you exactly, but they've, they've done some good good things for, for the climate. But having followed Swedish dumpster divers for many a year on Instagram, I know that that country has a serious food waste issue. And Ica is very much part of that. But that company was celebrated at COP26 for going beyond carbon neutral or whatever new term they've come up with. And I was surprised by that celebration because I know of this significant food waste that they cause. So then I started digging. How did they manage to achieve this beyond carbon neutral in spite of all this beef and pork being dumped on a daily? And it was through carbon offsets, of course. And so I'm sure many of your audience participants know about the major greenwashing times we are in, but this is only going to get stronger. And so I really urge people to keep their sceptical hats on because a lot of the things they're being told is not quite the whole truth. So be wary out there, folks, because there's a lot of nonsense being spread. And so we have to, to be sure that what is being claimed is actually accurate in real life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Especially if carbon offsets are used as a quick fix, uh, instead of actually looking at the problems along the supply chain and trying to fix things like the food waste issue in the actual retail stores. So to get to the ending questions, if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest in?
1: Farms. Farms. I basically do a lot of R&D and chat to all the experts. Growing good food. I'd explore much more agroecology and I'd find ways of educating farmers to sell their crops straight to people via digital technologies that we have. Just cut as many middle men and women as possible. Because I think once farmers get more control and can educate their consumers more, then we can make big inroads to making a more sustainable food system.
0: That's interesting. In episode two of the season, we had Pinduoduo on. They are an e-commerce giant in China, and they enable farmers to directly sell their produce to consumers. And if they have a bad harvest and they say, well, these apples don't look good, but they do taste good, and you're going to get a discount, they're able to sell their produce to people who are looking for discounted food or for special offers and who don't care about the aesthetics of food. So it gives Farmers much more uh, leverage, and some of them get together in co-ops or have somebody young from their village do the marketing and help them with the marketing part of it and having their own online store. And one of the main issues of this model that I was pointing out is I love the the empowerment of farmers. That's amazing. Um, Yet one downside is all the potential packaging that is necessary if you try to ship individual packages there should ideally also be incentives to try to get most of your produce from just a few farmers but that's something fixable
1: yeah that sounds fascinating i need to look into that more there's so much to do in the food system it's exciting times but we need kind of somewhat urgency and we we need to prioritize it more as a society regarding
0: food sustainability or agriculture what is an unusual or controversial opinion that you hold that many people would disagree with
1: well, it's not controversial. If you look in environmental fields, certainly. Many people think, for example, vegan is the most sustainable way forward. I'm not quite sure it's that black and white. I do believe on the omnivorous diets to an extent. But for example, fishing, what's the problem today is the scale of things. If you've got 100 kilometre nets or, forget the word, hooks to catch tuna off the Costa Rican coast, well, of course that's going to cause disastrous impacts on the ecosystem. But much smaller vessels of fishing using good methods, that's maybe got a role for the future. I'm not black and white, it's much more complex than that. I do get into some battles with some environmentalists for sure.
0: So what do you think about cellular agriculture?
1: I don't know enough about it. Okay. I need to listen to your earlier series for sure.
0: Yeah, I, it should be a good introduction to it. <laughs> so, how can listeners connect with you?
1: Uh, LinkedIn is where I'm most active these days, ironically, because the algorithm's way more interesting than Instagram. But I'm on the Instagram a little bit also here and there. But uh, yeah, those two platforms is where I'm at. And then also just my website, as Matt Homewood, and if people got questions or critiques or inquiries or whatever. They can just send an email through that.
0: Matt, thank you for being on Red to Green.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Maria. appreciate it.